You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Have you ever spent an hour and a half to really chat with your local nursery professional? This week I did just that and he illuminated a lot of things that we're all getting wrong as an entire industry. My guest is the aptly named Paul Plant, and he assures me that his name's real. He's a plant project management officer working with industry, government, and the public at a wholesale nursery on the sunny coast. He's also a radio gardening presenter at 4BC in Brisbane, a radio station guest speaker at River FM, Noosa FM, ABC, and West Bremer Radio, and on top of that, he's the previous editor for the Subtropical Gardening magazine, with extensive experience within the horticulture industry in the tropics and subtropics of Queensland. What do landscape architects and landscapers get wrong consistently that make nursery professionals shake their heads in dismay? What are our blind spots as a broader industry? And how can we tighten up to make our nursery brothers and sisters proud? In this episode, we'll outline typical communication breakdowns that occur between different sectors, We'll talk about how to get the most out of the plants you buy from your favourite nursery, and we'll also get an insight into what it's like to work in a wholesale nursery environment supplying plants to the rest of the industry. Stick around to the end of the episode to learn how we can control fire ants and make sure we don't buy plants that are hiding them. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much, Daniel. (laughs) So, look, when we talk about nurseries, there are... You know, we, we talk about production nurseries, that's where plants are propagated. Then we can talk about wholesale nurseries, that's where the trade come to buy their plants. So retail nurseries are where the public come and buy plants. Now, a nursery can often be two of those, like you might have a production and a wholesale nursery, or maybe a wholesale nursery that's open to the public. But can you please tell me about plant connections in Chevellum and your role within that nursery? Yeah, certainly. Within the role, based on the award wage, because of my employment situation, usually you can be employed either as a contract or an agreement or under the award wage. So my award wage is classified as an office manager. So although that is my description, what I do is I do the quotes, I do the sourcing of plants, buying in of stock. Um, I also, part of my role, I advise on ID, identification of plants when even the clients, the landscapers walk in with asking for advice. Um, I advise the landscape architects, the designers who come in, who are the clients of our nursery. And also, in some cases, I will advise on the growing of the stock itself. So if they have issues with the shaping of the plant or the pruning or the fertilizer regime, they'll come to me and actually ask some of that information because of my knowledge and experience in horticulture. So it's pretty broad, mm-hmm. but most of the time, probably 90% of the time, if not more, I, I'm in the office. <laughs> right. Hence the term office manager. But you're not the one who's um, filling up the printer ink or stuff like that. You're very much a nurseryman and a horticulturist. Oh, I still do the paper and the ink. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still have to do those and occasionally clean the toilets, but it, because we all share the role at the nursery. So you've got different size nurseries. So the smaller the nursery, the more things people do to make it run properly. The bigger the nursery, the more staff you can have and you can mm. allocate more staff to do the undesirable tasks that might be needed in any business operation. <laughs> okay. So you would say that plant connections would be a smaller nursery, would you? 
Yeah, we're within the group of the small to medium size. There are a lot larger nurseries, but given that, we also compete up against the big nurseries on quotes. So most of those we don't win, the really big jobs, but we do get a fair few of the medium to small jobs. And of course, we've got very dedicated clients who come to us no matter what. I mean, you know, sometimes they'll come in and grab, you know, four plants for to finish off their particular job or it'll be a trailer load or they'll come back numerous times to fill up. I mean, we drive all the way up to Harvey Bay for jobs. We drive all the way down to the Gold Coast for jobs, all the way up to Toowoomba. So it does depend what the job is, where it is, uh, how many plants are needed. We try to do the best we can for the client. Okay. So there's a lot of nuance and a lot of tangents that we could go off there. I'm going to save those questions till later because we mm-hmm. actually do have a plan for those. But like, how would you classify plant connections in terms of uh, propagation, wholesale, and or a retail nursery? Uh, see, I would describe plant connections as a production wholesale nursery. So production to me is all about the growing of the plants. It's from whether it's from seed or cutting or TC up into the stage to which it is then sold to another nursery. To me, a wholesale nursery is one that can also do the growing from the seed or the cutting stage, but also sources plants in from other growers if they need to. So we do both of those. And then, of course, to me, for a retail nursery, it's all about selling to the public. So rarely will a retail nursery have the stock themselves. That's a dedicated retail nursery. Mm. They just buy the stock in and then resell to the public. Uh, These days, we're finding more and more production nurseries are doing the whole spectrum, production, wholesale, and retail to keep alive, to to make their businesses survive during the periods of when there's, you know, downfalls and a lull in the industry. Why not make a little bit of extra money selling straight to the public? Mm Mm-hmm. So what are the logistics there around selling to so many different people? Uh, Well... (laughs) Selling to trade is quite often a lot easier than selling to the public in many ways. The trade, as in the landscapers, the contractors, the builders, the developers and the councils, they usually have a list of plants. These are This is how many I want. This is the size I want. This is the date I want it. This is where I want it delivered to. And they may or may not say I need it to be Australian standard certified. So it's it's pretty, you know... Here's my list. Do it. Mm. Come back mm-hmm. with a quote. They're very easy to work with. So landscape architects have just given you a list of plants and then here, there you go. Well, it's, it's really the landscape architect. It's right. usually the landscaper. So the landscaper is working on the job. Sorry, the specified plants from yeah, the landscape yeah. architect? Well, the landscape architect does the drawing. It's the landscaper who puts it into the ground. And they are the ones who are normally responsible for sourcing the plants and putting them into the ground for the client. So quite often the landscape architect is separated from the landscaper who is putting it in. Now, having said that, the landscaper on some contracts still has the final say Mm -hmm. after everything's been planted to give it a tick of approval. And sometimes on the list, the specification list also known as um, the schedule, they might specify a whole lot of different plants which we cannot source or may not be suitable for Queensland. So they will step in and say, okay, I Mm -hmm. accept this as a substitute. And rightly so. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because I think that there's a very important point to make there. Mm Mm-hmm. With the retail people, um, when they come in, it's usually, you know, I want one of this, two of that, three of those. I'm, <laughs> I'm, do, I'm, I'm doing, you know, a hedge at the back of my property because I want to block out the neighbour. What could, what have you got? 
you know, mm-hmm. and then you head lead them towards the lily pillies or something else. So quite often the consumer market is usually smaller plants, as in smaller number of plants. Very mm. few retail customers want a hundred litre tree put in their yard. Mm. And a hundred of them. Yeah, and a hundred of them. <laughs> they might want a hundred, say, storm lilies for a driveway, but they're not going to want a hundred lily pillies at a hundred litre each, each costing mm. about $175 upwards mm-hmm. to be put into their property. So, it does depend upon the clientele and where they go. So a retail nursery is all set up to handle the customer, handle the average Joe who walks in, who doesn't, who may not know very much about gardening, and guide them through the processes of selecting the right plant for their particular position in the mm. in the, you know position in the yard. Exactly. So we're going to talk about quantities of scale shortly. But you mentioned TC there, so that's tissue culture. And I think a lot of people conflate like tissue culture with like genetic modification. It's like a bit ambiguous and people don't understand what tissue culture is. Can you explain what the difference is between like other types of cloning like cuttings and tissue culture? Okay, so let's say I have a beautiful looking philodendron and no one else has it. This is the only philodendron on the market. So I can either try to grow it from seed but the offspring from this will be variable, like children. Mm-hmm. Or I could try to grow it up and then take cuttings from it, so they will be identical to the parent. But I may not get that many cuttings from the one plant I have, and it'll take years to create 150 of them to sell. Whereas TC, it's genetically the same as the parent. They get the meristematic tissue, and they divide it under sterile conditions, And so they're producing babies from the original parent and they can produce multiples, hundreds of thousands of the same plant. Some landscapers don't like to use TC stock. Some landscapers are perfectly fine with that. Currently in the the nursery industry, virtually all philodendron xenodos are from tissue culture. Mm. A lot of the cordylines now are from tissue culture. A lot of the lily pillies are now being produced tissue culture because we can mass produce them really quickly and there's a great way to retain that uniformity of that genetic stock from one plant to the other and therefore in theory theory they mm-hmm. should look the same <laughs> they should grow at the same speed the same way the same shape they should all have the same attributes the physical attributes so you get more uniformity. That's in theory. It doesn't really happen in practicality, but that's the theory behind the benefits of the TC stock. Okay. So that's interesting. I'd like to dig into that nuance there. Can you explain what, like you keep emphasizing in theory? In the- <laughs> <laughs> Soil, environment, right. gardeners. Okay. There are so many things that can influence the growth of a plant. So you can put two plants side by side. The two holes might actually be in different soil types, even if mm. a, even if they're a meter apart. One might actually get more fertilizer than the other. One spot might be better drained than the other. One plant, as a result of those environmental conditions, might get attacked by more pests and diseases than the other. All of these variables play a part on the physical appearance of a plant. So although genetically you could say they were the same, they may actually grow differently they may appear somewhat different right so i think of it as being like cuttings but with a microscope and a scalpel yeah that's a good way to 
Yeah, definitely a good way. And being able to mass produce it. That's probably one of the big attributes Mm. and one of the great things about tissue culture. So tissue culture is not genetically modified. It's just another method of propagating. Okay. So that's a pretty good segue into like how do breeders feed into this whole process? Well, well, okay, so with breeders, you've got people who are growing plants from seed. They've been doing all the breeding from the male to the female's um, pollinating process. They've selectively chosen new plants, and they are selling these seedlings to people. So that's one option. And a whole lot of our natives are grown by seeds because it's the quickest and easiest Mm. way, like mass production of say, Lamandria longifolia, a common revegetation plant. It's best to grow that by seed. There's no benefit doing it in TC. It just grows reliably from seed. If, however, you're choosing one of the different varieties or cultivars of Lamandria, like Verde or um, Shara or one of the others, yeah, they're, they're all TC. They're all tissue culture because it's maintaining and holding that genetic stock. That's really, really important and getting the numbers that you do need. Uh, If the propagator, the plant breeder, is growing it from cuttings, the same story, there's only a limited number of plants that they can produce. Um, And if it's division or pulling um, pups away from bulbs, again, it's all a slow process compared to tissue culture. Um, I personally love the fact that there is that variability in the industry. You can get a lot of good numbers through tissue culture, but some of the harder plants we do have to rely upon when the seed has been produced, for people to collect it, for people to sow it, for that germination to occur. Uh, a few years ago, we had a shortfall of Cupeniopsis anacardioides, the tuckaroo tree in the market, because the season of flowering and fruiting didn't occur. We had a really bad weather situation and all the seeds failed. So there was a lack of that stocker for a particular period. So with seed, you rely much more upon weather conditions, whereas with TC, it bypasses weather because it's in a laboratory. Yeah. Okay. So I guess with the breeder, um, they have to take a cutoff of every sale. It's like a copyright system, right? And and why is that? Like, why is that necessary that there has to be that uh, that copywriting or plant breeders variety rights system in place? So plant breeders rights, it's well, it's, it's kind of like payment back to the person who registered this particular plant. So the person who registers it may not have been the breeder. They just bought the right to right. the breeding rights. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's an important distinction. Yeah, yeah. So you do get people who breed it themselves and they put it through the PBR, the plant breeders rights process. And then you get the others who collect plants from others and then take on that responsibility of the PBR rights. Um, And so it really is a case of paying back them the royalties for the usage of that particular plant. Some landscapers love PBR plants because of that consistency element. Most of these are produced by tissue culture. Some landscapers don't. You've got Mm. the – it's a little bit like the conversation of whether to use a native or an endemic for a particular Mm. area. It's some landscapers are like that. I won't use TC because it's not the natural form of the propagation. So if that's their theory, that's fine. All mm-hmm. t- I've got nothing wrong with that. You just follow whatever their res- description is. And I've had many clients who have asked, was this resilience grown from TC stock or cuttings? And depending upon the answer, they'll say, I will accept it or I won't accept it. 
Perfect. Okay. So let's take Osbreed, for example. They're known for like low fuss plants. So, and like, um, pretty hardy plants as well. So there are plants out there that are probably maybe a little bit more fragile. So what our breeder Todd will do is he'll put down however many plants and then put them all in wet feet. The ones that live, he'll then breed them together and keep doing this until he finds that one plant that is so good that he's like, all right, I'm taking this one to market. I put it through hell and back and it just keeps living. So then, you know, we, we put a, a plant breeder's rights name on it, a cultivar name, um, so let's say slim colistamin or something like that, that hopefully kind of describes the habit of the plant. So slim colistamin is like a, it's an upright, uh, columnar colistamin, great for hedges. Um, it's resistant against myrtle rust. Um, you know, it has all these really great attributes and can sit in wet feet and drought. Um, so now we take that to market and you know, who's paid him to do that? Nobody until that plant is sold. So there's a there's an outlay of risk and an expense there at the start that then hopefully gets paid off over time. True. And if the marketing is really good, the landscape architects and the designers will see the attributes of that particular plant and specify it. What from our perspective, from say a nursery's grower's perspective, what we do is we look at how many clients have actually asked for that plant is it viable for the nursery to grow it will it grow in our climate is it compatible to our growing process Mm -hmm. so some varieties for example might grow well in say nursery aaa but may not grow very well in nursery bbb because of their potting mix or their irrigation system or something else so they won't touch it um you know, we, we've had scenarios where landscape architects have specified certain PBR varieties, but because no one is growing them in close proximity or in our state, we just say not available. It's available in New South Wales, but this is an alternative that's available now. So we do rely very heavily, and the landscape architects acknowledge this point that substitutions may be needed based on availability and time frame. So some landscapers are willing to wait three months or two months for a nursery to buy in the stock, grow it up to size. Actually, if you want a 45 litre, that's a year. Um, some nursery, sorry, some landscapers are willing to pay for the cost of getting a plant brought up from Victoria or brought up from New South Wales, but that's adding hundreds of dollars to mm. a plant cost. So it's a lot easier for a landscape designer and a landscaper to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the $10 plant. Yeah. I don't want to spend 50 bucks for this plant because I need 70 of them. Uh-huh. So sometimes the PBR is good. Sometimes it's not. A PBR plant <laughs> will always cost more for the landscaper who is always trying to make a profit. And quite often they'll say, no, if there's a cheaper plant, go with the cheaper plant. But there's also an expense for the maintenance crew after that landscape has left, or maybe they have in their claws that, you know, survivability rates and stuff like that. But survivability rates are a very important factor in this equation, particularly for the end client. It is. And once again, it does go back to the original client quote and their contract. Some landscapers have an obligation to do maintenance, some don't. And there's quite often a handover period. So, I think mm. things like the Sunshine Coast, they can go back a year, an actual year after something's been planted and assess it and determine should it be replaced or is it okay to continue with it. Now, some people regard that as unfair. Some people regard that as fair. Um, I let listeners and other people make their own decisions on that particular point. 
Um, but the landscaper, they need to determine if they are going to be responsible for this plant for a duration, how much more maintenance will they need to do in order to maintain that quality, which is when they put it in. Mm. Because as we understand, plants grow. They don't stay the same. Mm-hmm. They will need pruning. They need watering. <laughs> they need pest control. They're living things. We do have to look after them. And the maintenance is really, really important. Especially in that establishment period too, in that first yeah. couple of months. Yeah. And, you know, quite often landscapers, if they're in a rush, they'll just, you know, take the plant straight out of the pot and put it straight into the soil without any root teasing, without any preparation. And then they go, oh, the plant died. Why? And then it's really hard to pull out the information from a landscape. How did they plant it? What processes did they employ to put that plant in the ground? Did they tease it out? Did they do any pre-treatment? Did, what did they add into the soil to stimulate the root development? These are the unknowns which, from our perspective, from a nursery's, really will a nursery devolve that information probably for fear of being guilty of doing something wrong. Um, we, we have in the industry a lot of landscapers. Some know a lot, some know very little. The qualification of a person, the knowledge is very, very important. Um, through experience, we know that the, the landscapers who are passionate plant people, who have done their qualifications, who have been in the industry for quite a while, tend to know what to do really well with success. Those who have just, you know, left their accountant job and have started up a, a lawn mowing maintenance landscape company just don't know what they're doing. Ask all the questions, ask very important questions, but it also showcases their lack of knowledge. And from a nursery's perspective, we do have a bit of a fear that, you know, these plants may actually die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we don't want. So, look, what you, you mentioned there, like shipping plants from interstate because they're not available in in on the Sunshine Coast. Maybe there's a good reason that they're not available there. And I think sometimes landscape architects who are working interstate sometimes don't quite understand the local climate and what that means for the plants they're specifying. And obviously, that causes big issues for everybody, including you guys at the nursery. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very true what you've just said. A lot of landscape architects and designers do not know plants. They really don't understand and haven't studied horticulture enough. Um, and because I did my uh, the first year of landscape architecture, and I know they did six months of an one-hour program, and that was their horticulture content. And it was very, wow. very embarrassing to hear what they heard, the information that they were told, and the range of plants was extremely limited. But there are landscape architects who have a huge wealth of knowledge, and they are people who need to be nurtured and looked after in the horticultural industry. And they're absolutely wonderful. They create wonderful landscape architectural work. Same with certain landscape designers. They also have really good plant knowledge. The thing that we kind of really have the biggest problem with is how landscape designers and architects and specifiers don't understand the time frame of growth. It takes a while for, for a seed to grow into a tube to be grown into the next size up, all the way through up to a 100 litre or to a 100 litre pot size. Sometimes it takes years in order, like five years to achieve a 200 litre pot size. 
but you get landscape architects saying, here's my list, I want it in six months' time. Yeah, 600, 500-litre plants. Yeah, and, and it's kind of like, well, well, we biggest size we can find is a 300-mil pot. And, and then you have the dialogue and they go, why don't you have this? And we have to explain, well, no one grows it except under contract or if it is under contract, it's already accounted for for another client by for someone else. So there's always this dialogue trying to not necessarily persuade but to direct the landscape architect, the designer or the landscaper to better varieties which are available because they have a time limit. They have to get a job finished by a certain date. And if they want to meet the deadline, they have to make a compromise. A grower can only do what is physically possible through nature. That's the limitation. You can't bend nature. We don't have time warp capacity to go back mm. four years, plant the plant then and then have it ready now. We can only deal with what is present at present. So, Obviously, flexibility, substitutions, being a little bit flexible is very, very important in the industry. Uh, and as you said, we've got scenarios where landscape architects from Melbourne are doing designs on the Sunshine Coast. They do designs in cans. They don't fully understand the climate, the range of plants, the soil type, the, the effect of a monsoonal as opposed to a dry period. And that although the plant might be from a tropical cl climate, it may not actually be suitable for the actual site it's intended for. So the, the researcher behind selection of the plants has to be extremely careful. I'm a strong advocate of selecting plants, but using local knowledge so local landscape designers, local plant people mm. to choose the plants that are best for those particular positions and those sites. It really reminds me of Michael Casey's talk at the AIH late last year where he was talking about communication breakdowns, particularly in the green infrastructure sector, but it also applies everywhere else. And he's saying, as horticulturists, we need a seat at that table at the beginning of the design process, not at the correct. end. Absolutely correct. I mean, the height expectations, the size of the plant, the size of the root zone, even the costing. Some landscape architects believe, what is it, um, a 140 mil pot you can buy for $2. You can't. <laughs> you can't produce it plant for yeah. $2, maybe a tube for $2, and then you get up to the 100 litres, they think, oh, yeah, we as a landscaper, I can get it for 150 You could probably get a revegetated, bendy stem, multi-trunked water housier for that because mm. no one else will buy it. Mm. But a good-shaped plant is going to be around about $200 plus GST. And then if you want the Australian standards, that's going to be a little bit more because that needs the certification attached to it. So there's all these things that I think the breakdown of communication that you mentioned has to do with the various elements and the, the various um, sectors of the industry, really understanding and appreciating each sector and acknowledging they know this part better. They need to be consulted about that part. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, anything else to say about some of the communication breakdowns that can happen between all the different sectors, or do you reckon we've pretty much covered it? Well, one of the things on that one point is this thing about the Australian standards. Most people call it NATSPEC. That's the old name. The new name is AS2303. Um, 
it's it's one of these things where it's not the Bible for plant species, and landscape architects tend to use it as a safety net to protect themselves. And I think that the arborist, sorry, the landscape architects need to actually read the specifications because it's a guideline. It's not a set rule because the way one tree will grow is different to another tree. And you can't really expect all trees to conform to the Australian standards because (laughs) the Australian standards are made by man. The tree was made by nature and nature will do what it wants to. (laughs) And some natural trees are in no way ever going to conform with Australian standards. So, for example, we have people who have asked for, we want the pandanus, Australian standard ticked, and we respond, A, it's not a tree, it's a herb, B, it will never meet the Australian standards. Same with palms. So we should just not specify it then? Well, we we still specify (laughs) it, but, you know, when – yeah, well, when I do quotes, I just put little asterisks saying this this will not be Australian standards certified, and my quotes are full of asterisks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's probably a good way. Like as a horticulturist, I was telling you before we started re- recording, I like to use words like usually, often, sometimes, rather than these broad strokes that actually fall short once you get into the nitty gritty of it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is a safe way to get around particular corners. And, you know, when people say, well, when landscape architects and designers say, you know, will this work in this situation? We say, well, in most cases, it should, provided this, this, and this, <laughs> yes. and this are covered. Um, and then we say, you know, but that's dependent upon other environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. So I guess as a horticulturist and as a nursery person, as a landscaper, landscape maintenance people and landscape architects, we need to work with nature rather than trying to get her to fit into our box. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it, yeah, it is nice to prune a plant, mm. but you don't force it. Yeah, yeah, we guide it with a gentle hand, don't <laughs> we? Yes, yes, yeah. that would be the best move. Yeah. I once had uh, a client that I was working for, it was a servo station, and they had a palm that they liked to hedge Ooh, <laughs> into a little square. And that was very eye-opening. It, that was a fun one for me because you just see it. They were like, oh, I just bring this into a box. And I was like, really? Okay. So we did it. That's, that's what you want. And just, I mean, you can imagine what it looked like over time as yeah. the lower palms start to die off and, you know, just lived a horror. It was like, did you ever see that Simpsons Halloween episode where I think it's Lisa vomits out this little thing that goes, kill me. Oop, that's, didn't that's see what, that one, but no. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was like. It was like that little thing saying, kill me. Yeah. I, and, and I've seen um, cardboard cycads pruned as a hedge. Oh, yeah. yeah which which mm. I thought was very sad to cut off those fronds. Yeah. Yeah, I think we need a little bit of respect for the plants and for their natural habit and for nature itself. Yeah. D- d- um, also on that point regarding the communication thing, I think one of the unknown elements we have across all of the industry, whether it's landscape, nursery, or the landscape architects and the designers, is the looming 2032 Olympics. Mm-hmm. We've got no idea what the plant list is. We don't know what sizes they are. We don't know what species they are. For the nursery industry, it's really hard for us to definitively grow for that event so i do know some of the nurseries are just you know just growing what they think will be wanted 
and in mm. sizes what will be wanted. But we've still got a lot of years ahead of us, but mm. the planting has to be done hopefully within five years. Wow. So that's kind of like the time frame we're working on. That, that's what some of the nurseries I've spoken to. They're working on five years to have big mm. trees and shrubs and ground covers, virtually everything ready for the starting process of planting. And that's a huge outlay of risk if they've got it wrong. Yes, <laughs> because the Olympics isn't actually in five years no. and it's going to be a staged period of when certain buildings and things will be completed. So you can't put the plants in until the buildings are completed and the roadworks are done and the infrastructure is actually all in there. So mm. it's going to be very interesting in what happens. And the good thing, though, with plants is that if something gets too big, there's usually something else coming through in a smaller pot size that can always be potted up. So I think we'll be okay, but it would be really good if the nursery industry, the wholesale and production nurseries, were given a tentative species list at least that would be a starting point for some of the nurseries. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to now move on to, like, we've all been to a retail nursery. Like maybe you like to go to a garden centre and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea in the little cafe that they have there or maybe go to Bunnings and just browse. It's really easy to buy plants from a retail nursery. But what's the process of buying plants from a wholesale nursery and how does that differ? Okay, so for a business, well, we predominantly, our nursery, we predominantly service landscapers, contractors, builders, councils. So what they need is an ABN to be a viable business. Any ABN? That's my next point. <laughs> you can't be a hairdresser because that's, that's a retail purchase. Um, so you've got to be within the landscape industry. So when a new person comes in with and they say, oh, yeah, I've got an ABN, the first thing I bring up on my computer is ABN search. Mm -hmm. I do a search on the name or the ABN number. It just normally tells me what the name of the business is. Then I say, what is your website? And I check out the website so I can see what kind of business industry they are in. So I always... Currently, we only just um, provide the trade discounts, as I said, to developers, the nursery industry, someone who's in the environment of doing landscape projects. That's the main key. Um, so what they do is, for us, they need to do at least three orders, COD, which is cash when they do their, as in not money cash, but pay up front. Mm, and cash then on once, delivery. Yeah, yeah. Well, pay up front before we deliver. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then once three are done, we send them a credit application form. Then they're put onto a short-term credit, which could be anywhere from 7 or 14 days. Then if that's approved after a period, it then goes to a 30-day account. So some nurseries have a month, two-month, three-month longer periods. Some nurseries have much shorter periods. There's a whole lot of production nurseries that are purely COD. You cannot yeah. pick up a plant until it's first paid. Um, I actually think that's a really good strategy for cash flow. Yeah. But for a lot of other nurseries, the, the credit process is critical because the landscaper won't get paid until yeah. the job is finished. They're trying to get the plants on the job until they get paid. So quite often they're going to be 30 or 60 days until they get paid. So that 30-day credit is a nice flexible period. Yeah, so I guess with that cash flow thing, someone somewhere is losing out on that cash flow That's for a period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I as I said, I think going COD or cash up front is the best way for businesses to operate. But it's really hard 
if mm. you are relying upon to complete your job before you get paid. Mm-hmm. So I guess you're saying no to clients who can't afford to buy the plants today because they don't get paid until they sign the project over. Well, if if they've got no record with us, they're COD, irrespective of it. It doesn't really matter. Um, but also, although we're a wholesale production nursery, we do allow just some of the locals in the area to come to the re- to the nursery, but they pay a retail price and they're all COD. They all have to pay when they choose the plants, just like a normal retail nursery. Okay. So... Obviously, there's going to be different prices for different people depending on the amount of plants they're buying, how regularly they're coming to you. So you wouldn't charge someone coming in for one lamandra the same as like a builder who's going to buy 10,000 of them over the whole year. Can you tell me about economies of scale within the nursery sector? Okay, so there's a couple of weird little elements to that particular answer. So Some nurseries have different price strategies for different clients. For example, there might be one price for what's regarded as trade price. All landscapers landscapers get this one uniform price, but they might have some special customers and the special customers get a little bit less and then they might have their premium customers, customers who might get a little bit even more of a discount. So that's one way that some businesses work on their discount prices. So whether or not they buy one or 15, that's their pricing strategy. Then there is the other one about volume. And this is where the really big players in the industry compete with each other for the big civil projects like planting along the freeways. So rather than, okay, for example, if a landscaper wanted to buy one Lamandra longifolia in a 140 mil pot, they might pay say between four fifty and five dollars plus GST. Mm-hmm. If they buy fifty, it'll still be the same price. But if council says I need five thousand of that plus seven thousand of that plus four thousand of that plus one week later I need another fifteen thousand of the same plans, they might go, okay, we might give them to you for say three dollars seventy five because it's a volume thing. Mm. But that's up to the nursery to make that decision. Can never be guaranteed. And some of those nurseries will change those figures based on the time frame. Can they grow it quick enough? Mm. Based on the volume and also how important that client is to them. Do they want to retain the client? Do they want to get more jobs from the client? Do they know that client has another three jobs coming up in the next six months? Mm. So there can be that little bit of flexibility. However, the nursery in question also needs to determine, am I making a profit? Am Mm. I losing money? Is this viable? Can I keep doing this for a long period? So there, there are things that they financially have to sort out. And some nurseries will take a short-term hit for the long-term benefit. Mm-hmm. So they can even run a loss on a project. Yeah, yeah. Some some do run mm. at a loss um, because they see the other projects. And they might say, okay, to this client, I want your next three projects, but this one I'll give you a special discount. But that needs a lot of good relationship between the nursery and whoever that client, landscaper, developer, civil business entity is. Um, However, from a a generic nursery industry, it's not a good long-term profitability strategy to Mm. do that because it puts out in the industry this concept that, oh, I can buy Lamandras at four. What was it? Three dollars seventy-five. Mm. That that thought of price goes out into the industry, and that's their now their expectation. 
Mm-hmm. So doing that, although it might win you a contract, it actually, I think, does more harm to the industry in the long term. Right. Okay. And so I suppose in some ways, you you know, if you've got someone coming in who wants to buy 10 Lamandras for their driveway, you know, they're probably asking a lot of questions, taking up the salesperson's time, which is great, but, but there's a cost associated with that. Whereas a landscaper who comes in and says, I want 300 of these, 200 of them, buy. You know, that, that's a lot easier to help that person. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we love it when a landscaper emails us the plant list. Right. We just do up the quote and send it straight back to them. We work out what we can grow, what we have to broker in. We work out what special discounts we've got. You know, if, if in our nursery we want to move a particular line of plants, ah, let's sell them off at a cheaper price just so we can get rid of them because we have new fresh stock coming up. It's a great way to move stock, just reduce the price a little bit and make sure like we do, we tell the client, this is normally $6.50, we're selling it to you for $5.50 so that they see the benefit of the price already immediately in front of their eyes. There's no benefit hiding a discount if you don't tell them about it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess that there's a, there's a nuance between the sales skills or the sales techniques in between a retail and a wholesale nursery, would you say? Uh, huge, huge. Uh, in a retail nursery, it's all about virtually nurturing a member of your family. Right. So you imagine that customer is one of your family, you're talking Mm. them through the garden, you're helping them overcome a solution, you're giving them advice, you're trying to be their buddy, their friend. Um, It's kind of all of those things. And you're trying to, quite often, you're just trying to sell them just a few plants to meet their need. And they may never come back or they might come back just a few times. Whereas a landscaper, they're, they're in a rush. They want those plants, they want them quick, they want a solution, they want the best price you can give them, and if you can do all of that, they will be back for their next job. The landscaper is generally much more of a repeat customer. They will buy more volume over time compared to a domestic gardener. This is a generic comment I'm making. I might be wrong, but this is my experience. Um, So in a nursery industry, again, we try to make pals with them, we're friends with them, we try to learn their first names of every person who walks in the door. You're trying to create a relationship or um, a trust between us and the landscaper. So we are we are your suppliers. We'll help you get the best plants. If we don't have it, we will get it in for you. What are you after? When do you want it? How soon can we get it to you? We can't do that time, but we can get it to you two hours later. But if you go for a different day, we can get it to you at 7.30 in the morning. We try to give them options, solutions as best we can. I mean, that's for, for a, a landscape client, you try to do all of those things. With a retail client, it tends to be, this is what we've got available. This is the best we have available. We can get them in, but it may take a while for us to get it for you. I, the, I think the mentality, the connection you have with a landscaper is obviously a much more professional, mm. fast mode process Uh Whereas in the retail industry, your relationship with your client is more of a family, slow-paced, casual process. You still want them to pay and turn over and move on so you can get to the next customer, but it's much more of a a relaxed mode. Uh Right. And so it sounds like, particularly in the uh, wholesale sector, that there's like a lot of logistics there and you need to be able to be quick on your feet to be able to help them find solutions. True, true. I mean, you've like this week we had two customers who both wanted the plants first up on the first thing on the day, and it's like, how do we do that? 
luckily we've got two trucks. We right. can do that. <laughs> so so, so there, there are ways you can work around it or one, you know, one could actually be on the way to the other. You just get the truck driver in a little bit earlier mm. to drop the first one off and so they then can get to the second one. But you've still got to ring them both up and say, we'll be at point A at this time, we'll be at point B at this time. You just to mm. tell the second person you're second on the run. Yeah, right. So <laughs> no one wants to feel like they're second on the run. No, no, no. But, <laughs> you, you know, we, we get – and this has happened numerous times for numerous places I've worked at. You get the day before a landscaper rings up and goes, I want these plants first thing in the morning tomorrow. And you mm-hmm. say, well, I've already got three people first up on the morning. We can't get to you first, but I can get to you at, say, 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock or the earliest I can get to you is 2 o'clock in the afternoon when the truck is coming back. And unbelievably, this is a, a really important little secret. You just say, however, the plants will be here if you can send one of your trucks to pick it up. Because most of the time, they have the staff and they have the vehicle to come and pick it up themselves. And if it's really, really urgent and you cannot get there, I mean, you've done everything you can. You've sorted out your trucks. You can't move your trucks around. It's a definite time frame. Then at least the other option you've got is say, listen, our trucks are busy. However, if one of your guys can bring your own truck here, it's sitting here. It's going to be ready for you. It's just a quick load and then you can get it back on your site. It saves them the delivery fee, and it gets the stock to them when they want it. It's just another – it is another solution that you're providing to them if they want the impossible. Uh-huh. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Most of us have trailers and, you know, ute trays that we can put stuff in, and if it's a few plants just to get us started in the morning, maybe we get started with them, and then the truck comes around with the bulk of them later or something yes. like that. Yeah, and yeah, and that's what quite often happens. You say, what are your most critical plants – Okay, come and get these, and then we'll be able to deliver all the rest at 2 o'clock. Right. And that's probably better anyway because they're not sitting there in the sun and all that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great solution for them and for the nursery. Right. So you touched on this before, and I'd like you to explore this a little bit more. What do you do when one of your favorite clients comes to you and says, I want you know, 50 of these plants and you don't have them in stock? How do you still <laughs> help them? Okay. Well, the, the first option is – we have these instead. Do you want these? Mm-hmm. So I always offer them a substitution of something you already have. And then if they're adamant that, no, I need that particular variety because it's part of a much larger area and they're all of that, this particular form, mm. in that case, we broker it. The term we use is brokering. So we find someone else who's got them and we have to go and pick it up, bring it back and then supply it to the landscapers. But we will, of course, charge a premium fee because mm-hmm. we've done the searching, we've made the phone call, we've taken our truck to wherever it was, picked it up, brought it back to us, and then we're delivering it again to them. So some nurseries will charge anywhere from, say, put a premium of 10% on top. Most will do 30% on top. Some nurseries will do 50% on top. Now, if, for example, if you ask me, uh, I need one magnolia um, teddy bear in a 45 litre and I need it within two days' time. Well, I'll probably end up buying it for maybe about two hundred dollars. I'm going to hit you with, I'm going to hit you with fifty percent markup because I have to drive to one nursery to pick up mm-hmm. one plant, which is frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the more you order, the amount of markup goes down generally. Right. Okay. So I can see a few things going on there. One, 
you're keeping your client satisfied. Maybe maybe there's a bit more expensive, but that means that they're not having to pay someone on their team to search around to another, you know, another nursery, go and pick them up from there. Because obviously there's a cost associated that there for them too to source Correct. them from somewhere else. Correct. So so as to, to give you an idea, you know, um, for one of their staff to get in their vehicle to drive all the way to wherever it is to pick up whatever the plant is and then get back again, their 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 staff might be away for an hour, maybe two hours. It depends where the plant is. It might be a heck of a lot cheaper just to pay the premium which we would have charged. Hmm. Okay, so while we're on the topic of, you know, timeframes and logistics and stuff like that, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier about, um, you know, growing larger plants and how long that takes. But can you tell me a little bit more about some of the nuance around timeframes and issues caused by landscapers asking for established plants on short notice and, you know, how long does it take to pot a plant from a tube stock up to a, a larger pot? Okay, so first of all, I like to do the, the tube one first. Um, so normally what happens and what we're taught at horticulture school, the smaller size is normally a tube stock, which we then pot into a 140, then up to a 200 mil pot, then up to a 300 mil pot, then up to a 45 litre pot, a bag, then up to a 100 litre bag, then up to a 200 litre bag. That's kind of the natural progression. However, in reality nurseries quite often will plant a tube straight into a 200 mil pot and bypass the 140. If the tube is really, really big or a fast-growing plant, say, for example, an Eleocarpus grandis, which is the blue quandong, you could put a, a tube into a 300 mil pot and have it for sale within six months. So there are plants you can completely jump in terms of pot sizes. So you can go, some plants I know are going from 140 mil pot into a 45 litre bag in some nurseries. So normally you do a 300 mil pot into a 45 litre bag. Some nurseries are putting then 300 mil pots into 200 litre bags. So it depends upon the species and how vigorous and fast that plant is, both on top of for the canopy as well as the root system relates to how big a jump of a pot it goes through. The important thing though is its root development. It always mm -hmm. goes always goes back to back to its roots. So you still want a plant that has roots that will spread out really well, like a water housia is a good example, and it'll fill up no matter what pot size you put it in, it will always fill out to that particular size. Then you have really fussy plants like the ivory curl flower, the Buckinghamias, and then you've got a couple of other native plants which are also a little bit temperamental if they're put into bakes too big. So often it's the species specific that will dictate the potting up regime and speed and how often it's done. That's really interesting because I think it was Scott Smith that was on the podcast recently saying the general rule and, and one that I have always followed, which is, yeah, don't pot up too big. And I've actually, in my early days of, you know, when um, just pothos and stuff like that, you know, you, you put it into a thing too big and it just dies and you're like, well, what, what was that? 
well, it's because I put it up too big. But I guess that if you don't have to do that with certain plants, you save money on the time to up-pot them. You save money on pots that you're then going to have to throw out, that uh, intermediary pots between the two sizes. And I guess it would probably grow quicker too, no? In most cases, it will grow quicker. It's got – well, it's kind of – okay, you know how people say you could plant a tube stock grevillea in the ground and it'll grow to the same height as a – 300 mil grevillea if you put them both in the ground and looked at them a year later. Mm. Well, a ground doesn't have a pot size. Mm. So you're basically putting a tube stock in the ground if you put it straight into a 45 litre. Mm-hmm. So it just means it will develop its roots. It'll go out as far as possible. Most of the roots will be on the outer edge. And that's the one thing which quite often we don't want with pot plants. If we go up in stages, we get the roots filling up in a progressive phase. So if you put a tube stock into a 200, you get some really good growth. Then you put that 200 into, say, a 45 litre, you get a nice progression of root growth. Um, But if you put that tube into a 100 litre bag, it's the same as planting a re-veg embankment out in the bush. The roots will just spread out naturally. It's a completely natural occurrence. And this is where it kind of blows the minds of some horticultural people because they say, that's not what you're supposed (laughs) to do. That's not what I was taught. Yeah, I was definitely taught the opposite. But that's what happens in the industry and that's what happens in nature. So what we do at home in our veggie patch is quite different what farmers do. Mm. And farmers have great success. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that when you know the plant and you're working with it so often, you probably get to know which ones you can get away with and which ones you can't. Yeah, and it's it, this is normally done for trees. So these are the street tree type of species. We want really big, wide roots. We don't want the roots curling. We yes. don't want the roots shooting straight down. We don't want them doing weird stuff. We want them to grow as natural as possible. The key for especially our tree species is the early care of the roots in the tube stock phase and the moment the tube stock is potted up. That's the kill or success point Mm -hmm. of the entire plant specimen. You can either destroy it for the future or you could facilitate its future growth, just how you treat that tube stock. Absolutely. So while we're on the topic of roots, pots ain't pots. So are you familiar with like AirPods? Like, do you yeah. guys use those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've just started investing in those as well. So what we found with the AirPods is although they have a smaller volume of soil in them compared to a similar height plant, you get quicker, tall growth, but it uses far more water because it's air pruned. There's mm. more pores all around the outside. So the roots are exposed to dry much sooner. So they go through more water. So you've got to be prepared with irrigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've noticed and when we've been speaking to other nurseries, they get quicker growth and they're better for potting up to the next size up. So basically, a lot of nurseries who are using these are using a pot size. I think the size is something like a one, four, three mil root pruning or root standard code, something like that. And then they're putting them straight into either... um. 300 mils or 45 litre pots. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a huge change, but the, they're saying they're getting really good root development and uh, the plants are growing faster and they're saving on potting media. But the 
pots don't cost too much more. Mm-hmm. It's just that they use much more water. That's interesting. So is there more nutrient loss there or you'd think? Uh, well, I would assume so. It it depends. If you put just the amount right amount of water, then obviously there won't be much mm. leachate occurring. But I think you're just going to have to water far more and have more runoff from mm. those particular root pruning pots. Mm. So for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about in terms of air pots, I guess that when you think about a pot, it's just like a solid plastic wall around the outside with some holes at the bottom. And then the roots grow out, hit that wall, then circle around trying to find an escape route. That'll end up choking the plant, especially if they become pot bound over time and the roots aren't teased. Um, And then, you know, you pot it up to the next pot and then it's doing it all over again. You've got several layers of this kind of root girdling happening in, you know, in worst practice scenarios. Whereas with a a root pruning pot or an air pot, you've got these holes around the outside where the roots grow straight out, hit that hole, and then they can't go any further. So they don't bother trying to strangle itself. So it's, it ends up being like a root hedge. It, yeah, it does. And, and some of those pots are also ribbed on the inside as well to definitely facilitate mm. the dispersal of the roots. And I think it's a, a really good technology that needs a little bit more investigation and more nurseries growing it to see how it works out. Now, I do believe some plants will be really good for that particular pot structure, whereas others, it would be a waste of money. So a water housing would have no benefit in using that because it just grows too fast. Mm-hmm. It'd be in that pot for, ba- mm-hmm. what, maybe two, three months? Right. So it, it, that would be a waste of effort. But if you chose slower, naturally slower growing plants that might have had a history of difficult roots to deal with, then it would be a really good option to move towards. Now, I don't know the cold climate species that well, but I do know in the subtropics and the tropics, we are looking at a number of native trees that are common street trees uh, to use these air pruning root pots for those particular species. Mm -hmm. So it's about knowing that plant again, always comes back to that. Yeah, yeah. which species in your climate zone do you believe are better suited for this type of pot system? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we're talking about water housier, we love a good water housier floribunda in Australia, particularly in Brisbane. They are seen a lot. The council loves them. In fact, maybe they even love them a little bit too much, if that's possible. Can you tell me about the pros and cons associated with limiting plant pallets, maybe local council plant pallets, um, and that discussion between locally endemic and broader pallets? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> I've basically asked like four or five questions there. <laughs> uh, oh, God, where do I start? Okay, so endemic generally means local to the area. Uh, native is no native to the country in question because what's native here may also be native in another country. Mm. So you need to be aware of that. So we've got native plants, which are also native to other countries. Mm-hmm. They're not foreign natives. They're just native. Um, and then you've got the non-natives, which never started here and started somewhere else. So for a landscape project, you know, it's I suppose councils are trying to use more native plants. Some councils are very specific about endemic. Some councils just want native. Uh, and some councils don't care which way you go. I think the important thing is, is choosing the right plant for the climate and for the site. Now, some of the pros for endemic 
is that the theory is that they are better suited to the local climate conditions and the local soil conditions. There's also the attribute of keeping the genetic stock viable and maintaining it into the future. So it's basically trying to put back what was there before urban development. Before it changed, which, is, it changed. which is important. Which, which is important. But the problem is you've now changed the environment. Why should an endemic plant that was native to the area before urban got there, why is it an assumption that it will survive in this artificial environment which mankind has now created in suburbia? So that's one of the downfalls of the argument for endemic species. Mm-hmm. The, the other element that's a downfall for endemic is pathogens and diseases. If you have all stock of the same genetics, it is possible that one genetic might be weak and prone to a pest or disease. So that whole genetic line could be wiped out. But if you have genetic variability in there, for example, some of the same species but from a different area, and they start to pollinate and cross-pollinate and have some babies, then you're going to get some crossbreeds of the same species but of mixed genetics. Then you might actually now have some stronger genetics to withstand some of the pests and diseases. Some of these new babies might be better resilient to climate change. They might even be better in more diverse soil environments, which now urban environment is now has now been created, they might now be better suited to an urban life in an urban park, an urban street. So sometimes the endemics are not the best. Native is still good. So it, it's one of these things. Um, I, I'm not 100% supportive of, of endemic species. And one of the reasons also is because very few places can source endemic plants for mm. landscape projects and that can be a problem so you've got a lot of land care groups they are fantastic they're not used enough they can source specific link um, endemic species but for example the noosa land care group will only collect plants from the noosa area gimpy land care will only collect plants from the mm. gimpy area so i understand the mining companies they have dedicated Green stuff, I don't know what you call them, the revegetation stuff. They will go out, collect species of seeds that were on the site before the mines commence and in the surrounding areas. And when they do the rehabilitation, they get those species and put them back into the land as part of that rehabilitation process. That is excellent. That is absolutely wonderful. More needs to be done of that. But I think in the urban environment where we've just changed that climate so much, we have to think think outside endemic and think better of suitability. What is best suited for this site? What will thrive? What will grow? What will withstand the cars, the heat sink, all of these things which are changing the climate? And also the idea that that non-natives are bad for ecology also <laughs> off the face of it is wrong. Like have you ever seen a bird drinking nectar out of a out of a um Bougainvillea or something like that, you know, this is well, patently false. Well, I, I've ne- I've actually never, I personally have never seen a Bougainvillea being pollinated by a bird. I was trying or... to think of another plant, jacaranda. <laughs> Let's go that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, birds are after 
food. They don't care. <laughs> if it's Chinese plant- food or <laughs> they don't care, you know, that they will go wherever the food source is. And if they taste something and they don't like it, they'll go somewhere else. So birds have adapted very well to lantana. They have adapted to a lot of non-native plants. You've got butterflies which love lantana because of the nectar that's in the flower. So you've got, as an example, lantana. It's a beautiful ornamental plant used in Singapore. It's also a weed there. It's a registered (laughs) weed here. The butterflies love lantana. The birds love lantana. They eat the berries. They nest in the underpopulation. At my place, I've got a bird that dances underneath the the, the lantana all the time. So it's uh, a love-hate relationship we have with lantana. But if you plant plants in the landscape, whether it's trees, whether it's shrubs, birds, animal life will come. The more insects you can attract into your yard, which is through flowers and through berries and through things, you will bring more bird life in to eat those insects. You'll bring in more blue tongue lizards as well. But I should say the caveat to that is if blue tongues aren't endemic to your area, they just won't appear. They have to first be in your area. So I'm a strong advocate of growing the Richmond birdwing butterfly vine because where I live, it used to be in the zone where the butterfly used to exist. And because of deforestation and urbanization, a lot of the habitat was destroyed. So on my property, I've got about 30 vines and I've still got about another 10 or more to plant, but I've planted them throughout my property. And more and more people are now planting the Richmond birdwing butterfly vine to encourage the butterfly back into the yard. So that's an example of a local species being planted by more people to encourage more biodiversity of the butterfly and the survival of a butterfly in rural areas as well as into urban areas. So I guess that's interesting to draw that distinction between generalist pollination, stuff like our native micro wasps and our endemic um, hoverflies and stuff like that that'll basically pick on any aster family flower or any brassicaceae family flower that's really small, perfect for their mouth parts. And then we've also got like some random moth and some random orchid in the dane tree that just have this incredibly <laughs> like intricate specific yeah, yes. relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and just back to that Richmond birdwing butterfly vine, I need to grow that vine for the caterpillar, but the butterfly will go to every flower in the right. yard drinking. Yes. So I've got pentas, so I've got other plants throughout the yard where the butterfly visits, mm-hmm. and that is to attract the butterfly into the yard. Once they're there, they then find the vine to lay their eggs on. So it's a bit of a, a lure tactic that I use pentas and a couple of other flowering plants. But it's true. Butterflies will go wherever there's a food source. Bees will go wherever there is a food source. Birds will go wherever there is a food source. You just have to create the food source that they like. Absolutely. So, Paul, you're, you've been in the nursery for how long now in the nursery industry? Uh, in uh, Oh, in the nursery industry, I first started in the nursery industry when I finished college. So that's back in the late 80s. Okay. <laughs> that's a long time. So you went to college for it, but are HORT qualifications necessary and slash or beneficial for someone who wants to get into the industry or progress their career? Okay. It does depend where which part of the nursery industry or the horticultural industry you want to fit into. So for example, my particular role um, 
as the so-called nursery manager. If it was just an office administrative role, no, you don't need any mm. nursery qualification at all. If, however, you're dealing with plant knowledge and landscapers who need to know the ins and outs of plant selection and what's better for your soil, yes, because you're giving them the advice, the knowledge and the experience you've gained over the many years. And that's really, really important because they're going to be asking questions. What do I need to do to improve the soil? Will this grow how big? What do I need to do to maintain it to the shape? Are there any other things that, you know, that, that they have so many questions that they ask, you do need to be able to answer those questions. Um, but I have actually seen a few people with no horticultural qualification come into the role of doing the quotes, which is part of my role. Mm. And over time, they quickly learnt the plants. This was a person very astute at learning. They learnt the process of thought. They listened a lot to what I did. They watched how I did the quotes, adopted the same processes, and they're very proficient at that. It does definitely help. Do you need it? No. Um, well, do you really need a builder's qualification to build an arbor? No, mm. but it helps to have one. Yeah. So in horticulture, it definitely helps to have one. But we're finding that more and more nurseries are looking for stuff that don't necessarily have a qualification, which is quite sad. Uh, we've put in the effort to learn the intricacies of horticulture and a lot of nurseries and landscapers don't regard it as important. So we're not mm. remunerated for our qualification, our knowledge and our skills. So it's a good reason to look around. Don't be... Um, don't stay in the one job too long and don't be um, a pacifist with your job, believing that it's the only and the best thing you'll ever get. Always, always look around for a better job. But if you are looking for this type of a job where you're doing the quotes, I would recommend start in any nursery industry job that you can find. Get to learn the plants, mm. get to communicate with other clients, landscapers, improve your communication skills or just talking to people. And then a software you learn on the job, so don't worry about that part of it. Mm. Um, and then it's basically just uh, keep your eyes open, your ears open to opportunities and jump. When right. they appear, go for it. And that first opportunity, if you're just looking for your first job without a qualification, you might be pushing pallets from one side to the other and maybe poking sticks in the, in the potting mix. Or is that mainly automated these days? Uh, a lot of things are being automated. I know a production nursery where most of their staff, they they want their staff from a warehouse rather than horticultural knowledge right. to people because of their particular things that they do with that mm. nursery. It's more of a warehouse production line. Mm -hmm. It's a very bizarre nursery. Um, I won't say who it is online. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... It, it, it's it's one of these things in horticulture. It's an underrated qualification. We wish more people would acknowledge it. Those of us who have the hort qualification, we praise it. Mm. Those who don't have it kind of often dismiss it. Um, yeah, I, I would encourage people to do a qualification. You learn so much more than what you'll ever learn on the job. You may not use some of that knowledge, but it'll be in the back of your head. And you'll be surprised when you need to pull it out and use it. Absolutely. Like uh, I can really attest to that. Like you don't know what you don't know. And through my 
diploma, like I learned stuff like biology. Like, yeah, I'd learned about photosynthesis and stuff at school, but then learning about that meristematic tissue that you brought up, which are the stem cells in the plant that we use when we're, um, you know, dividing plants by tissue culture. And Mm -hmm. it it just forms the – it's like you can see through the matrix, yeah, it's 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 a better understanding of the science behind all the beautiful leaves and flowers that we see. Yeah, yeah. And the plant families and taxonomy and all this stuff is really important as foundational knowledge. I think if if you're really serious about horticulture. If it's just a job, maybe not. Hmm. For for yeah, for some people it's just a job, 9 to 5, don't care or 9 to 4. Mm. Um and and there are the people who quite often they might end up in just the potting shed. There's just re- you know, repetitive jobs of just potting and repotting and root pruning and potting and repotting. Mm. But if you want to excel, if you want to go somewhere else with your profession, um, you do need to have a broader understanding of horticulture as a science and also more of a, a broader work history. So different aspects of horticulture are very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'd like to now move on to... Networking and industry associations. So, Paul, you and I first met on LinkedIn. So, we sort of knew each other on LinkedIn. And then and by we the way, met. For pe- yeah, people who don't know, LinkedIn is not a dating app. <laughs> wow. Do you get a lot of dating people? Do you? <laughs> no, well, no, you said online on an app. Oh, right. Just, 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 definitely not. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like I, I find this all the time. Like, I'll, I'll meet someone online. No, just joking. <laughs> I'll meet someone on LinkedIn or just see their post and, and just be interested in what they have to say. And then they'll turn up in an industry association. And that's where we really connect. What is the power of industry associations for, industri- well, for individuals and for companies? Uh, listen, I, I'm a strong believer of industry associations. I've been involved with a fair few of them. I think if you're in an industry and you're doing work in a particular sector, you need to be affiliated with that particular industry body. So if you're a landscaper, be part of the Landscape Association. If you're a nursery, be part of the Nursery Association. It is questionable what people get out of the associations, but I think if you don't ask for what you know, what are the benefits? You won't know. But I think the link being connected to like-minded individuals and businesses is very, very important for your own business. So you can learn from them. You can bounce things off. You can go to shared workshops or whatever. I know with the nursery industry in Queensland, Southeast Queensland, they often have uh, it's it. I think it's every two months they have meetings at a mm. nursery where they walk through the nursery, see its production. They talk about the nursery. They have a barbecue, have a couple of laughs. It's a big, huge social thing, but they also get to network and talk about their processes and productions and issues that they might have. The landscape industry is pretty much the same. Now, I understand mm. everyone's competing, but they have a combined element, and it's called the trade. It's called mm. the nursery mm. industry. They all have have a shared experience of something to do with their industry. And I think that's a really important link for the individuals like us, where we kind of float between different sectors. You know, being part of the Institute of Horticulture is a really good networking scenario. I mean, it may not be possible for you to attend all the meetings or the conferences, but that connection is really important. You can still put the the acronym on the base of your communications on your name so you're seen as connected to a professional body. Mm-hmm. So there's 
you know, there's AIH national entity, there's NGIQ, which is Queensland, and they've got the Nursery Industry Association in each other state. You've got the Landscape Associations, you've got AIDLM, which is AILDM, which stands for the Australian Institute of Landscape Designers and Managers. You've got the Landscape Architects, known as AILA. There's all of these bodies. They are there for a reason to advocate for you, depending upon which group you fit in, but they try to work together. And that's, and, and this goes back to what we started with. You know, there is miscommunication. There is a lack of communication between each of the groups. But I think if some of the businesses were in multiple industry groups, it does help some of the connection between the various groups. And I think, you know, if, if you don't start now, if you don't join one now, there's still time to join no matter how old you are. Mm-hmm. I just tell people, please join one, choose one, the closest to whatever the work that you do, and that will be your starting point in the industry, in your profession. Yeah, I actually have an anecdote f- about this. So, like, for me, obviously, as a podcaster, it's really great to be a part of the AIH because I just get to meet so many different people. Now, I can see why a nursery person would just want to stick within the nursery industry. You can learn so much from your peers, and that's great. However, I just want to sh- share an example of um, what I saw I- at the AIH conference this year, which was that Peter Donegan came, and he's a landscape architect and designer, and he uh, was a gold medal winner from uh, MIFCAS last year, the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show, and he's coming back mm-hmm. again this year. Now, there are, there's a landscape crew there, Yards. Ben Fr- shout out to Ben French. Yep, ben, yes. Yep. They, they just met there, hit it off, and now Ben's getting flown to Melbourne to help them install and Melbourne, um, you know, Ben and his team. So that's just one example of how making those industry connections can actually advance our careers, can help give us these really cool opportunities that we never would have realized were possible. Yeah, Ben's awesome. I've been watching him since when he first started his business and it's been mm. an absolute pleasure seeing how big and how he's developed yeah. and how he's, he's actually changed the direction of the business and it, yeah, all credit to Yards. Yeah, uh, I think that's so cool. And it, it's just, um, I guess that would be the benefit of the AIH would be that we're so diverse. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. we've got landscape architects, designers, just plant fanatics, mm. educators, teachers, nursery people. You know, the great thing with the Institute of Horticulture, it does span every single sector of horticulture, including the fruit and veggies. So it's, it is kind of like a bridging group and we are basically just interested in the profession and the people of the profession. So it's not just nursery, not just landscapers and I think that's one of the benefits of AIH. Mm-hmm. Okay, Paul, we're coming towards the end of the episode. I've got two more questions to ask you. We're going to take a bit of a right-hand turn, uh, a right-angle turn rather. Uh, tell us about fire ants in the industry. This is a big problem in Queensland particularly, but around the whole country too. Yeah, it's a concern. And now it's all got to do with location, location, location. Right. <laughs> Either you are in the zone, the fire end zone, or you are out of the fire zone. So as a nursery, we're always asked, um, can you please send the fire ant certificate? So the fire ant certificate will d- define whether or not you're in the zone or out of the zone. Mm-hmm. So where we are, we are out of the zone. We have no restrictions. We're perfectly fine for sending plants around. So we can send them down to Adelaide, Victoria, Sydney, North Queensland. It doesn't really – oh, we don't send to Perth. Sorry, yeah, we don't send to Perth and we don't send to Hobart. We don't, Too yeah. far? 
Uh, quarantine regulations okay. of Tasmania and Western Australia are too difficult to deal with. Yeah. So we just don't do that. So with the fire ant, it's a very annoying pest that came into Australia. Um, it is something that has to be seriously taken. Our biggest, my biggest concern is whenever I see weekend market stalls, mm. um, even some of the gardening expo kind of shows, I'm concerned with some of those. Um, mainly because every plant that is sold that came from within the zone needs to be sold with a fire ant certificate. And I think at some of the events, they're not actually handing them out. And at the markets, they definitely don't hand them out. Mm. And I think the funding has been reduced. There was a population of fire ants found in northern New South Wales. I believe that's now been contained, controlled and destroyed. At least that's what I've heard. So that's fantastic. But the Brisbane area is still a high-risk area. So buying plants within Brisbane is problematic. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's the nursery industry has worked really well with the state government to work out processes to facilitate the plant sale around Australia and I think the nursery industry has full credit for what they've done with the government to maintain people's passion in gardening. Mm. Yeah, fire ants are no joke. I've been lucky to never been bitten by one, but um, apparently they are aptly named. Yeah, so from what I've heard and I personally do not wish to test them. No. I think the main thing is we just have to be extra careful with making sure if any Machinery, plants, mm. cars, trucks, soil, mulch, anything that comes from within the fire ant zone needs to be thoroughly checked and cleaned. Unfortunately, trucks aren't washed down. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Jeanette Severs about uh, biosecurity a while ago. And, you know, I think that one of the best methods for controlling biosecurity risks, like fire ants and others, are just barriers and borders, you know, like, okay, when you're in this zone, once you cross out of that zone, we need to quarantine you, wash you down, check check over everything, and then you can be on your way. Because, you know, we saw a, a failure of that with the Varroa mite, unfortunately, in, mm, in this country. Yeah. Yes. So, Paul, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask one final question. It can be on topic or it doesn't have to be. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? I would encourage people to uh, visit their botanic gardens. Oh, that's a sweet message. All botanic gardens. Yeah, mainly because I think we lose the connection of what is happening when it happens and how certain plants grow. So whether you're a member of the public or a professional person, um, I think a lot of professional people – take the attitude of I know all the plants, I don't need to see another botanic garden. But the truth is the botanic garden is a mixture of plants from different climate zones and you learn so much from a botanic garden. So I always tell people you need to visit a botanic garden Mm. at least four times every year. Oh, that's great. I've got to go and see Roma Street this year because I haven't been to any botanic garden since I moved back to Brisbane. Yeah, like so four ti- yeah, four times will yeah. give you a really good kick of the different type of seasonality. Although Brisbane, we don't really have seasons. Mm. Um, it gives you a good sense of how plants respond throughout the year. So if you only go once, you only ever see the same thing each time you yeah. go back. 
if you go back the same date. But if you go at different times of the year, then you'll see different things. And even like wherever I go, I went down for um, my partner was doing a fitness thing down in uh, Newcastle the other week. So, of course, I headed to the Newcastle Botanic Gardens. Whenever I'm in Cairns, I go to the Cairns Botanic Gardens. I always make sure I see the garden so I can best appreciate the native flora, the local flora, what they've got to show at that time in their botanic gardens. Mm-hmm. And that's re- yeah, that's what I really, really encourage people to do. Even in Brisbane, when I do radio, I tell people, visit your botanic gardens. I love that. And I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of a picnic and taking your shoes off and <laughs> like, you know, just having an apple juice and maybe a croissant or something at the park or at the botanic gardens. Just a wonderful day out. And most botanic gardens have cafes. Yes. So you, you can, can get your too. croissant. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. Thank you so much for a great chat, Paul. I really appreciate your time, mate. Thank you, Daniel, for your time too. If you have any questions for Paul and I, or you'd just like to connect online, there's an app for that. Check the show notes for links. The job board I built, Hort People, is making its first appearance at the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show next month. A couple of years ago, I volunteered in the Careers Hub and would run visitors who wanted a job from one stall to the next. This year it's going to be a lot easier because I'll help them find jobs on hortpeople.com. If you're an employee looking for staff, especially in Melbourne, don't wait. Put a job ad or two up now and I'll see if I can send a few people to your job who are a good fit. Type in hortpeople.com and head to the employer section in the top menu. It won't break your bank and you'll have a chance at finding staff who love plants enough to visit Mifkus in their free time.